Hi, I'm Jim. And I'm Eric. And I'm Joe. And this is Speaking of Race. Wow, guys, this is a tumultuous time. Yeah, that's uh, that's putting it mildly. <laughs> so we talked back in April about how the coronavirus pandemic was revealing a lot of the deeper issues surrounding race in the United States. And, and other things have been going on so that for the last few months, there's been this very long delayed recognition by whites in the U.S. about the role of race and racism in America. The news media is even using that term structural racism. Wow. That we, that we, <laughs> yeah, right. That we explored in our interview of David Embrick earlier this year, though the press doesn't always seem to know what that means. Still, it's better than it was. Um, oh, yeah. And since the last time that we recorded, which I think was a month ago, we've seen a huge backlash by the, the powers of the state. So Customs and Border Patrol agents have been witnessed nabbing protesters off the streets in San Diego, California, Columbus, Ohio. That was in June. And then again yeah. in Portland, which is the thing that actually made all the news. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And with the recent expansion of that thing that they're calling, well, it used to be called Operation Relentless Pursuit, but then the Justice Department just rebranded it as Operation Legend after a four-year-old boy that was killed in Kansas City. And now folks are worried that in Kansas City and Detroit and Chicago and some of the cities that are in that Justice Department operation, that they're going to also see these same tactics. Yeah, I mean, I, I feel like if there was ever a good time to be talking about anti-racism and educating about it, this this would be it. I agree. You know, I just heard this interview recently with Brian Stevenson. He's the lawyer who wrote the book, Just Mercy. He works with the Equal Justice Initiative here in Alabama. Yeah. Right, right. So in this interview, he had this quote, which I really like. He says, we need to engage everyone in a meaningful conversation about what it would take to cleanse ourselves from the legacy of slavery. And then guess what he thinks the first step in that effort of cleansing ourselves from the legacy of slavery should be? What? Tell us. Well, according to Brian Stevenson, step one is that you have to know your history. But the thing is, like, if you don't know what the history is, then we don't even know what has gone on that's wrong. And so we don't even know how to go about seeking the cleansing from that legacy of slavery. Exactly. This is a little bit out of the blue, but did you guys see the the thing with Tucker Carlson, the Fox TV news host, how his top yeah. writer resigned last week? It's because the writer, it came out that he'd been using this pseudonym to post really incendiary racist and sexist and homophobic stuff for like the last five years in different corners of the internet under a pseudonym. And Carlson himself, of course, has been casting the Black Lives Matter movement, which is having a moment right now, as a kind of guerrilla war which is attempting to destroy things like nuclear families <laughs> and to overrun the country with immigrants and to take away white rights. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Shows like Carlson's on networks like faux news <laughs> trade on the old inferiority narrative. Exactly. They draw from supposedly valid scientific peer-reviewed academic studies to back up their prejudices. So that's where we are today. To get back to Brian Stevenson's point, can we use today's episode really to highlight a specific instance of how that inferiorization narrative just keeps hanging on? But now it's using this kind of modernized scientific language that really cloaks it. It makes it hard for people that aren't trained in this stuff to really see what's happening. In fact, a really great example 
and, and by great, I mean terrible yeah. <laughs> example, happened on yeah. Alabama's campus just last academic year. Really? Yeah. Can you give me a quick rundown of what happened? Yeah, I wish you had been here, Joe, but the right. evolution group on campus at the University of Alabama, of which, by the way, I am a founding member. And I'm mis- in. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Mistakenly invited an hereditarian psychologist who pushes scientific racism about behavioral differences. And he came to tell us about those differences. And then Jim and I ended up getting invited to be part of a response panel that made a rebuttal to the presentation, which I think was pretty good. You know, one thing I haven't seen as a part of these big national and international discussions about race and structural racism at all is any kind of public questioning about whether or not race is a real valid biological category. Uh, And that deeper critique is really still missing on a large scale. People seem to really assume it's biologically the case. So I bet this guy probably had a pretty willing audience in Alabama, huh? I mean, that's a good point. It's an issue in particular because people really think that they don't have the biological background to be able to understand this. And yet you and I teach it all the time, Joe. I'm sure you deal with parts of it in your classes, Eric. I try to. Yeah. Mm -hmm. It doesn't take a lot of biology background to be able to get this. And the point that we're making here is that this isn't just some kind of side point in current events. Mm. As I've said many times in class, and I'm sure you guys have too, imagine how we might actually treat race differently if we all understood that race is a cultural construction and understood why that it's not a biological reality. Totally. Now, when we say that, again, people always think that we're saying everybody is exactly the same. That's not at all what we're saying. There's tremendous variation in our species, and there are even patterns of group difference. It's just that those patterns of group difference don't map onto our census race categories. Mm -hmm. And I've always thought that that's the kind of anti-racist education that's a central underpinning that we need to, to help to move beyond racism. Yeah. yeah, I totally agree. Okay, so what kinds of claims are these guys making on a large scale? Alan Goodman, who we just talked to, he specifically called out Charles Murray and Nicholas Wade. These are two of the folks who are trying to link race to intelligence and achievement, and they're really covering up a white supremacist perspective. Yes, and we've discussed several more of these recent scientific racists, particularly in part four of our race and intelligence miniseries, where we talked about people like Jim Watson and Grr. Robert Plowman. Yes, yeah. <laughs> that, that was a great series. Okay, so yeah. one of these guys ended up at Alabama giving a lecture in actually what's a nationally acclaimed, isn't it? Allele yes. series? <laughs> it is. It is. It, it's, a, it's a relatively big platform. So the the guy's name is Bo Weingart. He's a psychologist. He specifically sort of trades in hereditarian psychology. He used to teach at Marietta College in Ohio. It's a a little school down by the Ohio River, which I actually almost went to myself. But he was fired just a couple of months ago, in part because of his really racist tweets that are just out there on the internet. So anyway, he got invited to UA to deliver a lecture, which he just called the evolution of human diversity. And in that lecture, he he kind of tried to dance around the subject of how different human groups might have evolved different psychological profiles. Okay, so what do you say? 
Well, he said a lot of things. <laughs> so, Jim, you just why don't you start and just start picking it apart step by step? Yeah, like most scientific racists, he started out by disclaiming any kind of racist belief. Exactly. I'm not a racist. I'm yeah. not a racist. Mm-hmm. And, and then he went on to discuss the genetic basis of behavioral differences, including, according to one slide, that groups may vary on socially significant traits on average, such as intelligence, agreeableness, <laughs> athleticism, cooperative and criminality a little reminiscent of rushton to me seriously so he's saying that all those things can be linked to race well that they vary that's all he's willing to say at first just and he does not use the term race in the presentation he says i don't talk about race anymore Hmm. but beyond claiming just saying look i'm not a racist i'm not a racist i'm not a racist over and over (laughs) again he actually used a kind of a standard format that we've seen by other scientific racists Mm -hmm. what's that well he starts by saying that he's not an expert in human biological variation which is it's weird to start off by saying he's not an expert (laughs) but he literally said that the evolution of human diversity was just a side hobby of his it was in pursuit of what he called a darwinian research program which is really weird because I also do Darwinian research. <laughs> so it's a weird thing to hear. Anyway. I like I like yours a lot better. <laughs> Mine's actually on okay. Darwin. <laughs> so he gives us several examples of human population variation in physical and biological characteristics like skin color, milk digestion. And he then tried to sell the idea that IQ and other cognitive traits might work exactly the same way as those do. And that's why we'd see the differences between different regional populations. Oh, yeah. Okay. This is beginning to sound very familiar. Like in in Nicholas Wade, who we just mentioned a minute ago, he wrote the book, A Troublesome Inheritance in 2014, where he totally misinterpreted these cluster analyses of DNA to first argue for the reality of biological races, and then to try to use those supposed differences to account for supposed cultural differences <laughs> in yeah. accomplishments of each racial group. And oh my God, it's just, besides being awful, it's just terrible science. Yeah. Now, granted, Weingart is much more careful in the way that he speaks about these things in his published articles, but it, there is really a kind of a formula to it, which came out during that presentation at UA. Yeah, it really did. In his presentation, after he told us he wasn't an expert on human biological diversity, he put up a slide that slowly became populated with different human faces to represent human diversity. And so while the slide was populating with African and Asian and Native American and European faces, like an anthropology or biology text from the early 20th century, he then said that humans are as varied as dog breeds. Oh, dog breeds. I feel like people arguing for racial realism trot that analogy out. Uh, you said trot, like <laughs> like the Westminster Dog Show. He made a punny. I didn't even know oh, I yeah. was making a punny. <laughs> uh. Yeah, uh, my undergrad human variation professor, Vince Sarich, used that same dog breed analogy in his 2005 book where he was arguing for the biological reality of race and its effect on behavior. Okay, so let's break down for listeners why that analogy really doesn't work. There's a couple of really important aspects to the dog breed equals races syllogism. First, dog breeds have much less genetic variation within their groups and much more variation between the groups than the massive genetic overlap that we've documented and talked about on this podcast for so-called human races. Hmm. 
Okay, so you could see this by looking at, say, the differences in appearance between, like, I don't know, St. Bernard's and Shih Tzu's or something like that, right? Yeah. yeah. To be clear, are you saying genetically there's more difference between kinds of dogs like that than there are between kinds of human? Yes, absolutely. The the genetic boundaries are much firmer in dog breeds than they are in human races. And there's another really important part of that analogy. It's using the technical specifications of the American Kennel Club for different dog breeds, and they frequently have behavioral characteristics Mm -hmm. written into the dog breed specifications. So they use this analogy because an average person who has watched the Westminster Dog Show, for instance, knows that they are supposed to be linking physical differences between dog breeds, like differences in coat color and head shape with behavioral differences like retrieving or spotting prey or being great with kids. That's a good point. Yeah, Yeah. right. And of course, if you buy that sort of analogy, then the human analog they've already won you over to is, is by linking races with things like, you know, behavioral stuff like intelligence or personality, right? Exactly. Yeah. So Weingart tried to be really clever about divorcing himself from race over and over again. He dove into historical classifications. He, he called out people like Carl Linnaeus and Immanuel Kant. He said they were classifying with racist motivations, meaning that they were, you know, based on kind of the standard cultural, mental and moral hierarchies of the time. And, and he kept saying over and over again, look, I'm just not interested in race. Yeah. Right. And you said he didn't even use that term much. So <laughs> right. how did he get around this then? Like, what, what's the alternative he's using? Well, even though he clearly thinks that modern genetics validate the traditional racial classifications, he claims that he uses the term population instead of race. Mm-hmm. Like, That gives him some sort of absolution from racism. That makes him a not a racist. This is also really common among scientific races. Vince Sarich used populations in his book so that he could cut up humanity any way he wanted to. If he wanted to compare East African long distance runners against West African sprinters Uh, or Ashkenazi Jews versus Northern European whites because of their ability in commerce, It just depended upon what invidious comparison he wanted to make at the time. Population is the label that you use. Uh. Okay, so it seems like there's quite a bit of sleight of hand going into his whole framing of this topic. Whether or not it was intentionally done that way, it seems like it also has the effect of excusing him from being a racist conveniently (laughs) while still allowing him to make claims that are going to be ultimately racist. Am I right? Yeah. Yeah. And also inaccurate scientifically because... We know that racism biological. Yeah. The next thing he did after dog breeding us, he (laughs) turned to long-term human migrations from Africa to different environments. And he sets the table for natural selection to create physical and ultimately cognitive and behavioral differences between groups of humans. So to me, this was really the the driving point of his talk. If, If natural selection could create physical differences then it should also be able to create cognitive and behavioral ones, right? So he gives this really cursory and kind of primitive overview of migrations out of Africa, and he pays special attention to the different environments encountered between, say, tropical Africa and then all the way up into northern Eurasia. And I could actually see Jim licking his chops during this part of the talk. (laughs) 
Yeah, this is where he really dove into my area of expertise when he started giving us examples of skin color and altitude adaptation and cold adaptation. I'm a very generous grader, so I probably would have given him a C plus if he was an undergrad presenting this in one of my human adaptation classes. Yeah, but you were really unhappy with the skin color argument, so you should totally unpack that. When he threw his first slide up, actually his title slide has the same graphic on it. He uses this map of skin color that's based on skin color. I I refuse to even call them measurements. It's the old skin color tiles, Mm. estimates that were done all long before World War II. Uh. Then in explaining all of this and why the skin color is distributed the way it was, he, he tells us that he's not an expert on folate that's thought to be involved in the adaptation of dark or highly pigmented skin or on vitamin D that's thought to be involved in selection for light skin. Uh, Yeah. And I mean, this is something I also feel like I see repeatedly from racial realist folks. They sort of present charts and graphs that seem to comport with the limited knowledge that non-specialists like him who aren't experts have, but, but they aren't really backed up by present data or interpretation. And then they just say, well, I'm not an expert in X, but I am an expert in Y, and this chart looks good to me. Yeah, yeah. the same thing happened here. After he put the map up, then he shows us a table of about 15 genes influencing skin color variation. Now, those 15 genes are genes primarily that influence skin color variation in Europeans. Hmm. And then he, he looks at that and he turns around to us and says he won't get into the weeds on that because nobody probably cares that much. Whereas- I care. In, Yeah, right. In spite of the fact that it's the mutation and selection of those genes, along with more than 50 others, almost all of which are unique to African populations that determines modern human skin color variability. And most of that variability occurs in African populations. Mm -hmm. Doesn't really want you to think too much about that. He also doesn't seem to appreciate how recent some of the mutations were and how Recently, the selection has occurred for some of the lightest skin colors. And that's really the guts of the adaptive just so argument for skin color. But I mean, since he's trying to sort of pull behaviors and and cognition and intelligence into the same race or as he calls it, populations framework, right? It really wouldn't serve his purposes to go beyond the simplified version to show how actually genetically complex traits like skin color are, right? Yeah, you got to keep it light in all senses. We really do it. Another pun. That was another pun. (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) Sorry. We really do need an episode on the skin color story because so so many people don't understand how it varies across human populations. And the lack of understanding then leads to people buying Weingard's simplistic argument and then being more willing to make the extension to behavior. We're still learning things about the complexity of the gene environment interaction and human skin color, but then to take that argument and try and account for culture and behavior and economic differences between groups is absolutely ridiculous. It's ridiculous in humans, but that must have been why he then took a weird turn into culture gene coevolution with examples of like spider webs and beaver dams. <laughs> Oh, okay. What's the connection there? What do spider webs and beaver dams have to do with humans and race? See, this is part of that template that's used by race realists. And he he brought this up to do 
pretty much the same thing that the dog breed example is trying to get the the reader who's not familiar with these arguments to do. Oh, you mean to link sort of behavior and genes, right? Yeah, that's it. It's easier to see the interesting glitches that he has when he goes and uses the lactase persistence argument. Uh, he called this a great example of culture gene coevolution. He even said, you can relate this to the rise of farming because farming is when you domesticate animals and you get milk. Right. Remember last year, I insisted on opening one of our episodes with that terrible poem like off of 4chan yeah. <laughs> about yeah. milk drinking that the white supremacists love or whatever. Yes, I remember that. You, you guys thought it was crazy at the time, but see, it's all coming back full circle. You're right. Yep, absolutely. Yeah. We end up with that when these people who deny that they're scientific experts, but have no shame about the little to no understanding of the stories they try to use to tell us about biological differences. When Weingart was talking about the milk issue, he put a map on the screen of the lactase distribution. But what he didn't note is that there are different genetic mutations causing that behavior in different populations. And the selective pressure changing the gene frequencies is incredibly recent in many of those populations, including the recent ancestors of the white supremacist milk drinkers. Yeah, this is why I wish that there were, I don't know, some people who would just sort of walk around with the white supremacists like Richard Spencer and Stephen Miller. And when they say something that sounds like it could be scientific, but it really isn't scientific, then the person with actual scientific knowledge could just come up behind them and go, no, it isn't. <laughs> like this, it's like the scene in Monty Python and the Holy Grail where they try to give a scientific explanation of the witches. You know what I mean? If she weighs the same as a duck. Right. So again, this is more reducing behavior to genes and then completely misunderstanding the biological processes behind the behavior. And therefore, a witch burner. <laughs> <laughs> yes, that that part. Yes, it's science. As I was going over the list of things that Weingard discussed, did either of you notice anything missing in those adaptations? Well, one thing you didn't, you, or at least you haven't mentioned that you and I both teach about, Jim, is uh, sickle cell, which is one of my favorite examples of a culturally shaped adaptation. And we also talked about that one in our Race and Health miniseries. Oh, yeah. He avoided any mention of the best documented example of natural selection in humans, and I have to think that was deliberate. He does exactly the same thing in his article where he ties race to IQ. I don't know if it's because of the racial connotations of sickle cell that he was trying to shy away from race or whether it's because the whole issue of sickle cell is getting so well known that people, even lay people, ha have an inkling that it's distributed not just in Africans, but in European and Asian populations who mm -hmm. live with malaria. So it wouldn't really follow the population race ideas that he's trying to sell. So your point here, if I may gloss it, is he didn't get the biology very well. But what about the behavior stuff? That This supposedly big question that isn't actually a big question at all, but some people think it is, about whether there might be genetically coded differences in behavior between racial groups. Yeah, so this is the another important part, in my opinion. So after using several examples of differences in physiological traits between various groups, he then goes to talk about human culture being genetically controlled and different in human, you know, quote, populations again. And he does all this on a slide that's called human psychological diversity. 
after an extended example about changes in the physiology and behavior of Italian lizards, (laughs) he dredges up the 19th century racist notion of the causes of the difference in cognitive achievement between Africans and Eurasians. I, I don't think he's actually aware of the history of this idea, but what his slide says was, imagine in colder climates, hunting is more important for calories. Hunting requires more cooperation than other food gathering processes. Uh, yeah. Therefore, groups that spread from Africa into colder climates would have needed to cooperate more. Yeah. Over time, this would have selected for the propensity to cooperate in these non-African populations. Mm-hmm. And from there, he went to his major example of the evolution of cognitive differences, interdependence or collectivism in North Asians versus independence in Europeans. Mm. Oh boy, this this is a big debate in cultural studies too. I come across it all the time in my work in India. It's this idea that some societies are, must be sort of naturally more inclined to think collectively, yeah. like to, to ground their personal yeah. identities in, say, family or community, and that other societies are more inclined to think individually with the U.S. and our, our sort of rugged individualism as the paradigmatic example of that. This was actually just coming out in April with all the reopening protests. People are actually making that very argument right there. Like genetically, Americans are too individualistic to do things like wear masks and stay <laughs> oh, totally. inside. Yeah, right. yeah, you're right. Totally. Yeah. And so the idea here is that collectively oriented people would be less likely to focus on personal achievement or self-image, maybe more willing to do things like wear masks, right? right. Well, while these individualistically oriented people are achievement focused and competitive and concerned with self-image and maybe don't want to wear masks, right? But let me just say the debate over in sort of the cultural study side isn't at all about biology. We just <laughs> no. assume from the get-go that this is completely culturally conditioned if that dichotomy can even be pinned on to societies. And yeah. that, that's the center of the debate in my corner of the world. It's about whether or not that dichotomy is just ridiculously reductionist. And like, spoiler alert, it is. We're all <laughs> collectively oriented in some ways and individualistically oriented in other ways. Yeah, you know? yeah. Now, Weingard went all biological on it. He presented a genetic explanation for cooperation and collectivism that he then acknowledged wasn't replicable. But but he thought the logic was good and that there were therefore genes selected for North Asian collectivism. Yeah, so I don't I don't get this. So the fact that one gene didn't work then somehow suggests to him that well there just has to be another gene for it. Mm. Yeah, exactly. You know, if if that one didn't work, then it must be some other genes that are that are activating this. Yeah. He goes on to talk about rice cultivation requiring more cooperation. So people in rice growing areas of China show higher interdependence scores than those in wheat growing areas. And he assumes the difference must be genetic. And he assumes without any evidence that this is the same kind of adaptation by natural selection that he discussed for skin color or lactase persistence or the Italian lizards. By the way, this is this is also an, a thing in India. There was, really? there was this like little group of scholars in the 70s who claimed that major cultural differences between North and South India, especially in stuff like who's more advanced and which group has more liberated women, like all those kinds Mm -hmm. of things are supposedly related to the fact that South Indians are rice growers and therefore have to cooperate more. And of course, as we've talked about in our episodes on India and race and caste, there is a really serious racial ethnic caste rift between the North and South. Oh, yeah. And, and I mean that, but that stuff is really old at this point, and it's really largely been discredited in the literature that I'm aware of. 
Hmm. But measuring skin color or detecting mutations in the lactase gene, those things are a bit more straightforward than measuring collectivism, right? Huh. Yeah. I mean, yes, behaviors are always harder to measure than biological traits because they're hard to define, especially complex behaviors like collectivism or intelligence, right? We talked in our race and intelligence episodes about how intelligence tests don't really measure intelligence. Right. Yeah. But the difference goes way beyond just the measurement for, for things like lactase and even the better example of sickle cell, which he avoided. We have physiological measurements, we have specific DNA mutations, we have clinical evidence, we have demographic records to show selection operating, and we have archaeological and cultural data to gauge the appropriateness and utility of the adaptive just-so story that we're telling. Uh So by trying to draw an equivalency between the biological adaptations and his behavioral ones, he's also trying to convince us that it has the same level of data and research and scientificness backing it up. (laughs) And Mm -hmm. that's simply not true for any behavioral characteristic we have ever measured. Yeah, I mean, bad science, right? But how does exactly does he try to make it into scientific racism in this talk? Okay, you need to know a little bit more about his specific agenda. And he makes it very clear in his (laughs) paper, Dodging Darwin, Race, Evolution, and the Hereditarian Hypothesis. There you go. In that paper, he goes right to the heart of scientific racism, taking us back to Jensen and the claim that the IQ gap between blacks and whites is largely genetic and is based on past natural selection. Eric, will you honor us with your quote reading? I always get the really bad quote. (laughs) I didn't want to read this. All right, here's the article. All right, quote. Yeah. The claim that blacks face ubiquitous prejudice and discrimination in the contemporary United States is more often repeated than experimentally demonstrated. Blacks certainly might face some discrimination, but we are skeptical that it is as pervasive as is often claimed. Oh my God. Right? This doesn't age well (laughs) right now. (laughs) There's another one. You ready? Here's the other one. Yep. Well, I'm ready. Nevertheless, even if discrimination against Blacks in some countries is widespread, this would not explain IQ and achievement gaps between ethnically homogenous countries such as Iceland or Haiti, or between different demographic groups within multi-ethnic countries in which racial discrimination is not widespread, such as the UK. Or France, or Sweden. Right, right. Moreover, the claim that discrimination depresses intelligence must specify some causal mechanism that also affects other ethnic groups which suffer discrimination, end Uh, quote. Wow. I mean, those are, first of all, really bad examples of places that supposedly lack discrimination. Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, I, I would recommend that he listen to our four-part series on racism. <laughs> right. And then yeah. maybe our episode on structural racism, among others. Right. I hope we don't have to go over all of that again here, although yeah. perhaps good. There's one more aspect to the scientific racism agenda that we haven't covered yet, and it cropped up both in his presentation at UA and in his paper. He finishes oh, with this. I, I can't wait. What is it? <laughs> The culture of victimhood, which has been cultivated by the racial realists. They are always coming up with this, oh, I'm so marginalized by those liberal, politically correct academics, even though I'm doing the right white stuff. This is, remember, Joe, when we did that Flash episode with Sam Harris, and he had just interviewed Charles Murray. Yeah. And and they... It, that seems like it came right out of their mouths too. Like, what was me? The the liberals, they're, they're crushing me. Trying to shut us up. Totally. Yeah. 
I loved that episode, but yes, you're absolutely right. <laughs> That's right. And he claims that there's a concerted effort by mainstream science to silence hereditarians like him because his conclusions about group differences, or as he says explicitly in the paper, race differences in Ugh. behavior or IQ are unpopular. All right. Let's just say, I mean, the point we're trying to make here isn't just that those ideas are unpopular. It's that they're blatantly unscientific as well. Yeah. Uh, it's it's worth reemphasizing, especially from a social justice perspective, ideas from people like Weingard are repellent because they attempt to justify inequality. Yeah. That would be enough to really take a jaundiced look at them. But we don't fight against them like that. If they were actually correct, we would right. agree with their publication. We oppose them because they're unjust, but also because they twist the best scientific evidence we have. And when people can just ignore facts like that, you have to assume that they're either doing this out of ignorance, which, you know, in Weingart's <laughs> position as a professor giving a public lecture, you would hope that it wouldn't be ignorance, but... <laughs> But it's that, or it's actually to promote another kind of political or maybe a personal agenda. Jonathan Kaplan has done a sparring back and forth with Weingart. And as he points out in his paper, Ignorance, Lies, and Ways of Being Racist. <laughs> nice title. Very yeah. nice title for a paper. It's a nice paper to read, by the way. Current hereditarians are properly regarded as racist, not because they support a politically unpopular scientific hypothesis nor even just because they are guilty of culpable ignorance, but rather because their work reveals a deliberate and systematic attempt to minimize and ignore both the continued existence of racism and the contemporary and historical effects of racism. Here, here. Which Eric's quote showed. Yeah. yeah, that's a pretty good quote to end with. I mean, we could say a lot more. One thing that I would want to drop right before we end is the extent to which the race realists on the internet continually co-opt language that has in the past belonged to people who were race anti-realists. So right now they really favor using the word diversity a lot. And mm. when they see diversity anywhere, what they mean is, well, you also have to have a race realist in the group, along with all the people who think that race isn't biologically real. It's a cultural construct. So that's how they're using, they're actually weaponizing the whole concept of diversity itself. Just to wrap up, I, I think this was a really good example of the kind of public misinterpretation of science that goes on like right now as a way to justify race and racism, which... Yeah kind of brings us back full circle to where we, we began with Tucker Carlson and his yeah. show and <laughs> other examples of media that are promoting the idea that black people are naturally prone to violence, that they're less intelligent, more athletic, less capable of political leadership, or, you know, any of the other bajillion negative stereotypes yeah. that implicitly link behavior with this phony idea of racial biology. Yeah. That stuff is circulating, I think, even more widely right now than before. It really part is. Part of the backlash against the Black Lives Matter movement. Yep. And the protests that are still raging in cities across America. So, I mean, it's important to pick it apart. And I think you both did a great job of that. It is. And I, I think like Stevenson says, like, we got to get down to the roots of all this stuff in order to even figure out what it is we're supposed to be recovering from. Yeah. You know? yeah. Mm -hmm. Anyway, thanks, guys. Good job. I'm Eric, yep. the historian of science. I'm Jim, the biological anthropologist. And I'm Joe, the cultural anthropologist. You've been listening to Speaking of Race. Find us on Facebook at SOR Podcast and on Twitter and Instagram at Speaking of Race. Thanks so much for listening and be safe. Wear those yeah, masks. Too.